Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas. dot com slash acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 45 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, December the 9th. First, I'll be talking to marketing whiz Maureen Barton about how companies can really make a difference with their marketing. And I'll be talking to economist Alex Joyner from IFM Investors about the outlook for the economy next year. But now let's talk to Maureen Barton. Well, Maureen, tell us about Maureen Barton Consulting. I, I've been in Australia, but this is my 12th year. I have been a consultant in marketing and business consulting since 2004. So that's almost 20 years. When I came to Australia, I had no experience with the Australian market as a resident. I did sell into the, to the Australian market with product and service over my career in America. But I, I, I took a job first because I needed to learn the marketing touch points of the Australian consumer and business. And um, after a couple of years, I decided that it was time to reopen my consulting business. So I've been consulting now, let's say I moved here in 2011, January, and I started the business about 2015. Right. So basically the business has been going for seven years. Yeah. Well, it in its present form, but it's been going since 2004. I never stopped consulting with a handful of clients when I moved here, but I was doing other Australian work, but I, I've always kept clients. But So who are your clients? Yeah, I work with a few different types of clients. I specialize with small to medium-sized businesses. Up till now, and generally, it's because they generally don't have the, the numbers of people to have dedicated marketeers on staff. So outsourcing marketing is financially responsible. I also do a lot of work. So in, and in that space, in small to medium-sized businesses, I work with professional service providers, uh, lawyers, accountants, in, insurance brokers. It could, it could be medical, allied medical professionals, generally businesses with could be one, usually it's two to 15 staff in the SME space. I've done a lot of work and have always had a, a number of retail and um, consumer good businesses. I've always had a number of retail and consumer good businesses, retail and or wholesale manufacturing. I have a very deep background in manufacturing, so that's 
very comfortable space for me and, and retail, hospitality. And in the large organization space, I have done some amazing projects with both nonprofit and very much for-profit organizations. In Australia, I've been very involved in the nonprofit sector. I've run campaigns, created uh, global campaigns and, and, and helped organizations uh, raise millions of dollars, build buildings, hospitals, and things of that nature. And previously in the United States, I consulted with Walmart, the world's largest retailer, and Pittsburgh Paints, one of the world's premier paint manufacturers. Lots of varied experience. Now, what do you actually offer these businesses? We provide our clients with marketing strategies and marketing plans that are designed to communicate effectively to not, not just to a target audience, but to an entire, an entire audience. An audience, I, I look at marketing very much as an inside job and internal marketing is often overlooked. So a marketing journey with our company starts with looking at the inside. How is your team communicating with each other? Because that communication and the consistency of communication, the tone of communication sets the tone for how they're communicating with the outside world, your customers, your stakeholders, your vendors, and whatnot. So along with that strategy, we often are involved in creating brand messaging and and, and establishing a voice. We will define avatars and, and identify, first of all, the goals, vision, mission, purpose of a company. Often companies have it, but it's not up to date. Often they don't have it. It's, you know, 50-50 and it changes. I think one of the things that I've come to understand over my decades in business is that a marketing strategy, a business plan, a marketing plan, they're very, they need to be dynamic. And if they're not being reviewed on a consistent basis, you know, at least annually and updated, then they're largely out of date. So we provide that service. We provide the strategy. We build marketing plans and then we manage implementation. For most of my clients, um, that, that is probably the thing they are looking most forward to having someone else manage making everything happen. So we build teams. The teams can be completely external. Sometimes the teams are built with um, internal as well as external resources. Some of my clients do have people on staff. They just need direction and mentoring and guidance. Other times they don't have people. So we'll bring out, we'll put it out to tender, bring in bids, evaluate best opportunities, best value and best fit for the company. It's not always the best price. It's not always the most uh, extravagant company. It's more important the fit. So basically you're refashioning companies when you're doing Re this. Refashioning? Companies, yes. Well, you, you are... You are reworking them? Uh, I'm not sure I would... I've, I've never considered it that way. Refashioning? No, uh, that to me, and I'll be pedantic here, to me, fashion is temporal. Right. It's in, in today, out tomorrow. I'm not interested in that. Yeah. I'm, I'm a classic kind of chick. I don't buy fashion. I buy what looks good because if it looks good today, it's going to look good tomorrow. In that same vein, in marketing, if your message is strong today, it will be strong tomorrow. If it's on trend today, it'll be out of fashion before you know it. So no, I don't refashion at all. Right. I, I build messages that are timeless that are specifically targeted to the audience that you desire. So, and that's, that's actually very important. Lots of, lots of challenge and time is spent around the challenge of, well, you know, we want to meet these guys, those guys, and the other guys. But in identifying an avatar, you really need to drill down and say, well, I might want to talk to everybody, you know, in, within, you know, a hundred Ks of, of me, let's just say. 
But all those people within 100 Ks of me aren't ideal clients. You know, they could become customers, but does that mean they're going to be ideal or even worth my time or my energy? And so part of the work we do comes down to really getting specific. Who do you actually want to work with? How challenging is that for companies? It's challenging. I, I think uh, one of the things that sets us apart is that when we go in that deep dive mode with our clients, we are able to tease out that information. You know, sometimes, I don't know, you might find this with your own, with yourself. I know I find it to be true of, of me with myself. When I'm asked that question all by myself, sitting in front of my computer, typing and trying to answer some of these type of questions, I get stuck like at the very beginning and I need someone to tease it out. And that's a strength that, that I have. So looking at, you know, let's say we classify customers as A, B, C, and D. A is the best customer. They give you business all the time. They pay you fairly on time and they never ask for a discount and they come back for more. Client B, well, you know, you might have to dicker around with the price and sometimes you win some, you lose some, but they're good. Client C, it's a little bit on the low price side. Maybe it's easy work. Um, sometimes it takes more out of you than you, you thought you'd have to put into it, but they do keep coming around. Client D, they don't pay well. They give you big jobs. They take forever to pay. And you have to make 7,000 revisions. So at the end of the day, when and if you do get paid, you were working for peanuts. I think one of the most important things is to, to first look and say, all right, let's segregate our client base, our avatars, the people that we are currently work with. And I say, who's A, who's B, who's C, who's D? I see you're smiling. That resonates with you. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so once you know who the D client is, you go, we don't need those guys. Yeah, they are nice people, really enjoyed. They've been on my books for 15 years. But at the end of the day, I have to pay them. You know, it amounts. So is it challenging? Yes, because a lot of a lot of us are A, afraid to make changes in the in the mix-up of our client base. We're afraid to cut the cord or raise our prices so that it effectively cuts the cord, uh, or change the nature of our service so that it effectively cuts the cord. But in doing so, we create new opportunities. And and it's the the backbone of a solid marketing strategy. You've got to know who you're selling to. So where do you see yourself? Where do you see uh, more embarking consulting moving? How do you see it growing? Uh, it's a very exciting time for, for the company right now because we're moving into a very interesting space where uh, we're now beginning to work more heavily with business owners and business leaders in uh, mentoring them and their teams. So we'll go in and work with them on the key deliverables that we provide, which would be the messaging and making sure we're talking about the to talking to and in the right language to those people, the people they want to meet, create strategies and plans, and then we mentor them so they can run with it. Or we make sure that we have those teams in place and we man we project manage. And it's a, it's a nice, it's, a, it's, it's very exciting for me because I like production. I come out, I've got a heavy background in actual product production. I like to see how things are built. I like to see them come to fruition and, and deliver results. And so managing a team or mentoring a group, a team, so that they make those things happen is hugely rewarding for me. Well, after talking to you, I, I kind of think you were always heading in that direction. <laughs> what, production or mentoring or? Mentoring. Or mentoring. Well, you know, it's a really interesting thing. It, yes, it's true. And it's not something I actually ever pegged. But if I look over the course of my journey, my most fulfilling moments have been in the mentoring and the teaching. And I've always measured, I've employed many people over the course of my career. And I've 
worked for myself exclusively from the time I was 22 till today, with the exception of the first five years I was here in Melbourne. And so I've employed quite a few people and I've learned that the best way to measure the value of a team member is when they leave or go on holidays or they need to be asked to leave. Are you able to pick up the pieces where they left off? Did they work transparently? Did they work following any protocols, following the protocols that were put in place? Because the real quality of, of a team member is that, you know, that you can pick up where they left off and, and, and not lose time and not lose, you know, intellectual property and all of that. And, and that's the way we like to work with our clients. So um, we want to in, improve the position where they're at, improve their communication and market impact, level of engagement and ability to be consumed and leave them in a position where they can either take it and run with it or continue to get the, the support they need. Maureen, it's been fascinating talking to you and wishing Maureen Barton Consulting all the best. Thank you very much, Leon. Pleasure to talk with you. And now let's talk to economist Alex Joyner from IFM Investors. Alex, uh... We've had uh, all sorts of issues this year with, uh, you know, supply chain issues, the pandemic, uh, inflation and interest rate rises and uh, the prospect of global recessions. Um, What's your view about the economy next year? Most economists have become quite bearish about global economic prospects. I would almost characterise it as we've reached a, a peak bearishness in terms of a lot of the sentiment, business sentiment, consumer, investor sentiment around the world, those those levels are, are very, very low because most people would expect that the remedy for high inflation, which is higher interest rates, will have a negative effect on the global economy and in particular advanced economies where central bank uh, action is most aggressive. And that will dampen economic growth into 2023. And... You, know, you look at the consensus of economists and it appears more likely than not that the advanced economies of the world will go into recession. It's less of a contentious issue to expect the UK and Europe to go into recession. That's probably what most people are thinking. Whether the US goes to in, into a recession is probably you know, more of a 50-50 prospect. The Fed is obviously being one of the most aggressive central banks in the world. Uh, economic growth will no doubt slow, but they might just skirt recession and just have very weak growth. And then you bring it back here to Australia. The prospect of a recession is is unlikely in my view in 2023, just because we've already seen the Reserve Bank be very cognizant of the impact of its policy on the Australian economy. And also we still have a little bit of a tailwind from high uh, high terms of trade, and we expect population growth to come back. Australia has one of the highest population growth rates in the in the advanced economy world, uh, and that will see our economy sort of have a buffer against uh, what will likely be a global downturn. Okay, so less chance of Australia going into recession, but you'd have to say that the central bank's raising interest rates has done very little to stop inflation rising. Well, that's right. It's, it's central banks are responding to what is an unprecedented uh, supply shock, at least in in the in the uh, inflation targeting period. Uh, you know, it's something akin to the seventies, but this was before uh, the seventies were obviously before central banks were so prominent in the global economy. And 
the situation is we all know that supply and limitations on supply have been a key factor in driving up inflation rates. What central banks have tried to do is bring down demand to meet supply. So demand had been very, very strong coming out of the pandemic. Uh, we're in a situation where fiscal policy was very proactive and, and very effective. Uh, so demand in advanced economies was quite strong and central banks are trying to take the edge off that. Now, they have had to try quite a bit. The household sector has been quite resilient. Uh, economies have been quite resilient, um, but they are now starting to gain traction. You would probably think in the US that we are around or just through the peak in uh, inflation in that economy, and we should approach similar uh, peaks, although a little bit higher in the UK and Eurozone. So we're probably like, likely through the, the worst of inflation globally, but how it comes down is really going to define 2023. I think most people think that the global environment has softened enough to see inflation rates come back down from that 8 to 9% year-on-year rate to something like 4 to 5% year-on-year. But that's still not near central bank targets of 2% in the case of the, of the Fed. So what we'll need to see is central banks probably do more next year, uh, at least in the first half. And then interest rates will probably be at those levels for an extended period of time until the reserve banks of the world or the central banks of the world are comfortable that inflation will get back to their target levels. So you would see interest rates still going up in the first half of next year? I think that's, uh, that's pretty consensus. The Fed has highlighted many, many times just how uh, hawkish it is on inflation and how it is willing to inflict economic damage on the U.S. economy to get inflation under control. So that's, that's probably the U.S. is probably the one that we're most certain about will continue to raise rates. The U.K., Eurozone have also uh, sort of committed to further rate hikes. And the Reserve Bank here in Australia, um, although they're more than likely to raise interest rates by 25 basis points at their next meeting, which is in December, look, they, they have a break over the summer period in which they, they can reassess. And you know, I think really the Reserve Bank will be the first central bank to really be fine-tuning its policy. And that, that will happen in the first part of, of 2023. Uh, but I think for, for the Reserve Bank, at least, uh, most of the work that it has to do on interest rates has been done this year. Uh, and it really won't have too much to do next year at all. So you don't anticipate interest rate rises uh, from February next year, or maybe one or two? Or well, I think it's a first quarter situation. It really depends how uh, inflation plays out in the Australian context. We are likely to see it peak in the fourth quarter, but we don't get those, uh, you know, we don't get the next quarter's data until January. So we're really sort of flying a little bit more blind than other central banks in terms of how we see inflation. Now, we do get those monthly figures, but I don't think anyone has gained significant comfort around those just yet to be able to make a, a central bank or monetary policy call. So, you know, I, I think, you know, the Reserve Bank is going to see over the summer period that the global economy is deteriorating. We're likely to see some deterioration or further deterioration in the Australian economy. And that will see it uh, really you know, give thought to, to pausing on interest rates. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to cut next year, but it certainly means um, you know, that they haven't got too much to go. It might be uh, 25 uh, or, or uh, 50 basis points further to go on, on the cash rate, and that's where I think it'll stop. Now, that's a little bit lower than many people are thinking, uh, but I just think that the RBA here is really 
cognizant of the impact of its policy on the household sector. And, and that will really be what defines what it does in the first part of next year. I was, I was very struck by the last statement on monetary policy by the RBA, where they were saying there were so many unknowns in this, you know, because you, you had uh, the, the war in Ukraine, you had COVID, you had supply chain issues. We, we really don't know how it's going to play out next year. Would that be right? That's that's right. I, I think I think we're more certain around economic growth than we are on inflation, uh, because we know that tightening monetary policy will affect economic growth negatively. So that's a, that's a that's that's driving most people's forecasts and expectations. There is obviously a huge amount of uncertainty on the global economic front, um, not just with the performance of of the advanced economies of the world. Uh, we certainly don't know how the Russia Ukraine conflict will uh, evolve. So that's keeping uh, at least energy prices and food uh, prices uh, elevated. So they're not they're not coming down. Uh, another uncertainty is China with its commitment still to uh, main, maintaining COVID zero policies. Its economy is really not firing on all cylinders at all. You know, it's there's uh, regional lockdowns um, that are that are meaningfully curtailing economic activity. And we're uncertain as to how long China will persist with these policies. So, you know, if they continue to persist, then there's some downside to economic growth next year. There's some downside to the to the free flow of, of exports from the Chinese economy, and, and that would fix supply chains. But then there's some upside risk as well on that one. So there are, are, are an enormous amount of... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Uncertainties just as to how uh, the Chinese economy itself will, will open up. Uh, and the Chinese economy is then beset by its own issues around the property sector. So um, it's really a situation where central bankers will be watching and waiting to just to see what happens. So that's why they characterize this uh, environment as being just so uncertain. They haven't had to deal with a pandemic, a supply shock uh, and geopolitical tension uh, and conflicts uh, of this nature all at once before. And I think they're really sort of grappling as to as to how they manage these things without really uh, causing a material recession. I, that's that's something that really strikes me now about the economy is all these uncertainties. I've never known to be so many uncertainties all at once. Well, it's it's it's, it's not uh, it's not a situation where what the central banks are used to either. It's uh, it's really a situation where all these exogenous factors, as you might call them, uh, have been inflationary. 
and it's it's caused an inflationary spike that central banks are not well equipped to deal with because obviously central bank policy is not doing anything for geopolitical tensions. It's not doing any China's health policies. So they're really just using the tool that they have and, and hoping that they can just take enough demand out of the system to get to get inflation lower and do what they can on inflation because central banks view inflation as, as sort of the, that economic evil, which it is, but they really don't know how things will transpire. And I think there's an unusual amount of uncertainty around uh, central bank forecasts going forward, especially around inflation. You know, I, I don't have as much confidence as say, say uh, the Fed or, or some other economist that will we'll all just get inflation down uh, in towards target target levels and, and everything will be okay. I think there's probably a few more challenges in actually just having to wait out inflation. The worst case scenario for the global economy is to go into stagflation. So central banks raising interest rates, getting economic growth way down, uh, unemployment rates rising, and they fail on inflation. That would be the worst outcome. So uh, I think they've really got to become a little bit more cautious and, and sort of just try and assess the, the economic outlook uh, as, as we go into 2023. So stagflation could still be a risk for 2023? Yeah, it certainly could. Uh, we've only just seen the peak now in inflation. We don't know how it will come down. We don't know how it has changed uh, inflation expectations in economies. Uh, you know, our, our economy is adjusting to a higher level of inflation. Um, you know, we've got wages that are, that are rising in many economies and that will feed into inflation. So, you know, maybe inflation will, to a certain extent, uh, feed on itself. In, in the economies of the world. So we really have no idea how quickly it will come down. We hope it will come down quickly. Um, and there are a few things on the on the global supply chain situation that would suggest, you know, there is a there is some downward momentum, but just how far we can get it under control and central banks don't have to tighten and they can might might even consider easing, we we just don't know. Uh, and I think that's why you see a a, a vast range of uh, expectations for 2023. Well, Alex, that's all quite intriguing. And thank you so much for your time. Pleasure, Leon. And Thanks wishing you all the best for Christmas. Thank you. You too. Thanks a lot, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, Australia's central bank raises key interest rates for an eighth consecutive month and said it expects to tighten further as policymakers combat the hottest inflation in three decades. The Reserve Bank increases cash rate by a quarter percentage point to 3.1%, the highest level since November 2012, at its final meeting of 2022. Tuesday's widely anticipated decision brings the RBA's cumulative hikes since May to three percentage points, the sharpest annual tightening since 1989. And Australia's economy grew by 0.6% in the September quarter, according to data released on Wednesday by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, lifting annual real GDP growth to 5.9% from 3.6%. The figures missed consensus. Economists polled by Reuters had forecast a gain of 0.7% in the September quarter and 6.2% year-on-year. And soaring inflation, a jumping wages bills, and cooling mining earnings helped drive the 12.4% collapse in Australian company profits in the three months to September, the biggest fall since at least 1994. The quarterly business data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics revealed an unexpectedly sharp and broad-based reversal in private sector revenue. With soaring energy prices heaping further pressure on businesses, the ABS figures show total wages and salaries paid in the quarter were up 11% on a year earlier, the largest increase since 2007, as more Australians got jobs and employers paid higher wages and offered incentives to attract and retain staff, even as their operating profits shrank. Over the September quarter, wages jumped by 2.9%. And a report by the Grattan Institute, which 
has been presented to the federal government's Medicare Task Force calls for a wholesale overhaul of Medicare and shift away from its current fee-for-service arrangements to a blended funding model. The proposed new model would enable GPs to lead multidisciplinary teams of clinicians and prioritise the most complex cases. The report says Medicare is ill-equipped for 21st century doctor and patient needs. It recommends a drastic overhaul of Australia's universal healthcare system to fix the front line of general medicine and bring it up to speed with the country's growing caseload of chronic disease. The report paints a grim picture of general medicine in which GPs are harder to access, patient numbers are up and presentations are increasingly acute and complex. Patients need more time with GPs who are being encouraged to move in the opposite direction and trim down consultations. The report notes that general medicine in Australia is modelled on individual doctors serving individual patient needs. One of the Institute's key recommendations is to turn general medicine into a team sport. GPs make up about 74% of the clinical staff in Australia's general practices, and yet for every 10 GPs there are fewer than 3 nurses or other clinicians to support them. Compare that with England, which is at a ratio of 1 to 1 of GPs supporting clinicians. In Australia, GPs do all the work, with supporting staff delivering close to 0% of primary care. The US, a health system, Australia prides itself on beating in every way, allocates about 11% of the workload to nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And lawyers for former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins have given notice that they will sue former Liberal ministers Linda Reynolds and Michaela Cash, as well as the Commonwealth, for about $3 million. While the criminal case alleging that Higgins was raped by former colleague Bruce Lehrman will not proceed, her lawyers have indicated that they will pursue a claim in civil court this month. In documents sent to the two former ministers in the Commonwealth, Higgins' lawyers have set out an intention to sue for sexual harassment, sexual discrimination, disability discrimination, negligence and victimisation. Higgins will claim about $2.5 million for future economic loss, past economic loss approaching $100,000, general damages of $100,000, future assistance with domestic duties of some $200,000 and past and future out-of-pocket expenses of a further $150,000 approximately. And National Australia Bank said business loans to finance electric vehicles or EVs and plug-in hybrids have ballooned by 900% since 2020 and expected further strong growth in EV lending. Loans for solar assets such as solar panels and batteries have jumped 600% since 2020. While the growth is off a low base and NAB did not reveal the dollar value of these loan portfolios, Group Executive of Business and Private Banking Andrew Irvine said the trend showed Australian businesses wanted to invest to lower their carbon emissions and curb high energy costs. Macquarie analysts said the big four banks' sustainable finance commitments had hit $315 billion and NAB's targets for cutting emissions from its lending for oil, gas and cement manufacturing were the most ambitious of the big four. Westpac had the most ambitious target in the power generation sector, the analysts said. And solar power is set to overtake coal as the world's largest power source by 2027 and the uptake of hydrogen technologies will help Australia deliver its own net zero goals, according to the latest report from the International Energy Agency. The IEA report said the war in Ukraine had accelerated the move to cheaper clean energy sources such as wind and solar. Renewable energy in total will overtake coal as the largest source of global electricity generation by 2025, according to the latest IEA update. In Australia, new state-level auctions and high demand for corporate power purchase agreements are expected to boost Australia's renewable power capacity by more than 85% over the next five years. The first truly global energy crisis triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sparked unprecedented momentum for renewables, the report said. Fossil fuel supply disruptions have underlined the energy security benefits of domestically generated renewable electricity, leading many countries to strengthen policies supporting renewables. Meanwhile, higher fossil fuel prices worldwide have improved the competitiveness of solar PV and wind generation against other fuels. 
The IEA report released in Paris predicted the total capacity of renewable energy is set to double in the next five years, leaving open the possibility of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees, a key goal of international climate agreements. More than 2,400 gigawatts of new renewables is expected to be installed around the world, the equivalent of the entire installed power capacity in China today. According to the IEA, this is an 85% acceleration from the previous five years and almost 30% higher than what was forecast in last year's report. While countries might be turning to coal-fired power to help them cope with a ban on Russian gas, the report showed renewables would account for 90% of global capacity expansion over the next five years. And soaring iron ore, coal and natural gas are set to add $58 billion to tax revenue over four years and deliver Treasurer Jim Sharma's A Christmas Miracle, a federal budget bottom line temporarily in balance. But while a boon for exporters, high commodity prices are driving domestic inflation, placing huge strain on household budgets and forcing a major intervention in the energy market by the Albanese government. Better than expected thermal coal prices will add about $5 billion to the budget in 2022-23 and $15 billion in 2023-24, according to veteran budget forecaster Chris Richardson's mid-year economic review. That will help the budget briefly get it back into balance over calendar 2022, before structural spending pressures on social services and defence plunge the bottom line back into the red for the foreseeable future. And the company behind Australia's newest export industry is hailing the supply of high-grade phosphate as a boost for food security in New Zealand and Australia. Centrix started mining the fertiliser-making ingredient at its Arbor mine in northwest Queensland in May and is supplying New Zealand's two biggest fertiliser producers, Balance and Ravensdown. The company has also supplied or has agreements to supply Australia's biggest players in, in Inside Tech Pivot, Hobart Base Emma Roper and their West Farmers Fertiliser Division, CSBP. Centrex made its first export shipment from Townsville to New Zealand last month to agricultural cooperative Ravensdown. A second 7,000 tonne shipment was due to leave the Queensland port on Sunday under a similar offtake deal with balanced agronutrients. The high-grade phosphate will be turned into superphosphate essential to pasture growth needed in dairy, lamb and beef production that provides a backbone of the New Zealand economy. Centrix Chief Executive Robert Mensel said the company had highest grade known deposit in Australia by Country Mail and now had contracts in place with every major superphosphate supplier in Australia and New Zealand at a time of growing concerns around food security. In big food producing and exporting nations like Australia and New Zealand, those concerns have been around the supply of essential farming inputs such as fertiliser and chemicals from overseas. Centrix, formerly an iron ore play, aims to supply about 625,000 tonnes a year from the Ardmore mine for at least the next decade and is weighing up expansion options. An ASEC CEO Helen Lofthouse and ASEC Chairman Damien Roche were on the back foot during a Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporations and Financial Services hearing on Monday morning. As committee's chair, Senator Deborah O'Neill described the chess replacement project as a profound failure. A report by Accenture last month pointed to problems including ASX's relationship with Digital Asset, a startup building the software, conflicts of interest and management operating in information silos. The report found only 62% of the software had been delivered despite assurances from Mr Roche and senior executives that the project had moved into implementation phase. The detail of the Accenture report was quite shocking, Ms O'Neill said. Everyone is watching ASX now after seven years to do a project and then pulling a pin at the end with 62% of original scope. Everyone is wondering if ASX is up to the job and did they take it seriously and can any of the timelines be trusted? When Mr Roche assured the committee ASX had adopted a transparent approach, Senator O'Neill questioned whether the reverse was true and ASX was attempting to cover up its failings. And Australia's top corporate cop, said ASX's failure to upgrade the chess system had significantly shaken his confidence in the market operator's ability to manage technology projects. 
This is an extraordinary example of hubris on the part of ASX, Mr Longo told the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Corporation and Financial Services in Sydney on Monday. The failed project to replace Chess had triggered a $250 million write-down at ASX and a similar level of losses across the rest of the market. Mr Longo said ASIC and the RBA want detail from ASX on how it plans to compensate custodians, registries and brokers who invested in good faith to connect to a new system, which has now been mothballed, because it could now take between five and eight years for replacement for Chess to be created. Mr Longo said ASIC and the RBA needed to verify commitments by ASX. It will invest in the legacy system, which arranges payments and transfers ownership for $5 billion of equities traded each day. And Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen is seeking urgent briefings from his department as the government seeks to limit the fallout from the collapse of the engineering contract at Clough amid a threat to almost $10 billion of projects critical to Australia's energy transition. The failure of Clough has added another level of urgency to discussions among energy ministers due to take place in Brisbane on Thursday regarding reforms to spur investment in infrastructure needed to keep the lights on during the shift to low-carbon energy. Industry observers warned that Clough's administration, which occurred after after a $350 million sale deal with Italy's WeBuild fell through, would delay and would drive up costs of the Perth-based contractors' projects. This includes some of Australia's biggest projects, such as the $5.9 billion Snowy 2.0 storage venture and the $3.3 billion project Energy Connect Electricity Interconnector between South Australia and New South Wales, as well as one of the few gas power plants being built in the national electricity market. And Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has clashed with South Australian Labor Premier Peter Malinowskis, who wants to explore nuclear power for his state amid the nation's energy crisis. Mr Malinowskis had argued that the possible assembly of nuclear submarines in Adelaide was an opportunity for Labor, especially those in Mr Albanese's left faction, to rethink its opposition to nuclear power. But Mr Albanese, who inspected flood preparations in Renmark on Saturday with the Premier, gave that short shrift. I have a great deal of respect for Mali, but everyone's entitled to get one or two things wrong, Mr Albanese told 5AA Radio. I haven't changed my view that it's a distraction from what we need to do. It just doesn't add up. That's essentially the problem. Every five years or so we have this economic analysis of whether nuclear power stacks up and every time it's rejected. The popular Mr Malinowskis argued the planned construction of nuclear-powered submarines in Adelaide should ease public concern over nuclear energy. Under that proposal, the reactors will be built overseas and delivered to Adelaide fully sealed for incorporation into the front part of the submarine hull. And Brisbane-based cryptocurrency platform Swiftix told staff on Monday that it was making 90 positions or over one-third of all employers redundant. This is the second round of redundancies for the crypto exchange this year. In an email, Swiftix co-founder Alex Harper said the redundancies on top of 74 positions cut in April were part of preparations for a worst-case scenario in cryptocurrency markets. The truth is that Swiftix grew too fast, Mr Harper wrote. Our world was very different at the start of the year and our forecasts were for global trading volumes to carry on rising for at least six months longer than they did. According to documents filed with the Australian Securities Investments Commission last week, Swiftix has suffered a 23% fall in its after-tax profit due to a sharp downturn in crypto prices and a global investor rejection of riskier assets in a rising interest rate environment. Swiftix booked a $36.6 million profit after tax for the 12 months to June 30, down from $48.2 million in the prior period. The platform has also moved to a more conservative arrangement as the cryptocurrency sector is buffeted by investor scepticism and a fall in asset values, unwinding almost all fixed term arrangements with third parties in the last five months. The Australian Securities Investments Commission filings note the company would continue to monitor recent market events, including in relation to cryptocurrency exchange FTX and the impacts and risks that insolvency may present to the broader market. 
And the competition watchdog says it will monitor closely domestic airfares to ensure they will add extra seats and flights to bring down airfares, which have hit 15-year highs. An Australian Competition and Consumer Commission airline monitoring report found in December for airfares were about 27% higher than they were in October 2019. And with discount fares selling out quickly, the cost of flying had doubled since April to reach the highest level since 2007. The ACCC will be monitoring the domestic airlines closely to ensure they return capacity to the market in a timely manner to bring downward pressure on airfares, the report says. In this context, the ACCC would be concerned if the airlines withheld capacity in order to keep airfares high. Looking ahead, the ACCC says air travel will not normalise until supply and demand move closer to pre-pandemic levels. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Andy Fiss, head of Anaplan ANZ, a planning software company used by leading ANZ enterprises across consumer packaged goods, retail, finance and healthcare to help them better plan for the future. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about the market outlook for 2023. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.